please turn with me in your Bibles today to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 to 13, but we're only going to focus on just two verses today. Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches in his teaching. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality He who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Amen. You may be seated. I would love to continue reading that entire chapter, but we have, we have so much to dig in today, today in verses 9 to 10. Indeed, as Emilio said, it, it is truly a great Pastor Emilio has said to me, it it is a great honor, it is a great joy to be at this pulpit and to look into God's word with each and every one of you. And especially to look at this, this powerful section of Romans because this, this entire letter of Paul to the, to the church in Rome is often referred to as the quintessence and perfection of saving doctrine. And it is also again in in humility and with much trembling, but with great trust and expectation upon the Spirit of God that he will illuminate and, and empower these truths to us. It is interesting today, I just remembered that this is our anniversary, first anniversary of our first visit to this wonderful body. So it is amazing in God's timing and providence. I, I never would have expected this, but glory to God. Amen. So today, as I said, we're going to look at verses 9 and 10. And Lord willing, in two weeks, we'll follow up and finish verses 11 to 13. But 
in order to, to better understand the context of where we are in Romans, because we kind of jumped into the middle of the book here, but we need to just briefly summarize what Paul's been saying to the church in Rome at this point. The first 11 chapters remind ourselves of the rich doctrinal truths of the gospel of Christ. All that he has done for us in revealing the great glory that he alone deserves. There, there's such a, a purposeful and, and logical flow in how Paul lays this out in the beginning of, of the proclamation of in the heart of the gospel in, in justification through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the assurance provided by the gospel, that hope of salvation that we have, that, that reign of grace, that love, that agape love that is poured into our hearts by the Spirit, that freedom from the bondage to sin and the law, and that assure, eternal assurance of life in the Spirit. And he continues to the defense of the gospel and, and understanding what Israel's plight is. And then he concludes in, in chapter 11 with this glorious doxology of praise to God for his great wisdom, his vast and excellent wisdom in, in completing this, this work for, on our behalf for us. Then in chapter 12, he begins with his, his actually his 12th therefore statement. And it continues from 12 all the way to, to chapter 15, verse 13, in which he brings all of this doctrine all of this transforming power by Christ from instruction through to pastoral exhortation. It goes from the indicative to the imperative. So he comes now to the very heart of the matter, and that is the, the transforming work in the life of the believer uniquely and sanctifying work through the body of Christ. And in the first eight verses of this chapter, chapter 12, Paul preaches with such a pastoral authority the need of our transformation by the renewing of our minds and the unity within the body, even though there's a diversity of race, tribe, tongue, nation, even though there's a diversity of gifts that have been determined by God. And now at the middle of this chapter, we have five verses that the, the Holy Spirit has given in such a, an economy of words but with an overriding theme and then penetrating exhortations, these, these divine demands and marks of a true believer that are both inward and expressed outward. And if we're to simply just read through this chapter and, and maybe are, are, are working our way through the Bible every year, we might read through these kind of quick and, okay, I, yeah, that's good, but we might... Two hours later, forget what was really being said here. We might see him even on a Twitter feed or something. But in these, these verses from 9 to 13, there are, there are 13 exhortations given to us with pastoral emphasis, with authority, and with compassion. And you may ask yourself, well, how, are, how should we, how are we to understand these five verses? They are so compact. They are Paul's short staccatos of truth. And he helps us. Praise God for the word of God. He helps us in this. If you turn over very quickly to chapter 15. I just want to look at two verses here real quick. Chapter 15, verses 15 to 16. 
Remember, Paul is talking to the, the Gentile believers here in Rome, and he's explaining to them how the, the ministering truths of this letter will accomplish that transforming work of the Gentile sinners into worshipers of God, holy and living sacrifices to God. And he says, verse 15, But I've written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offerings of the Gentiles may become acceptable. We'll stop there. Paul's aim is to make these Gentile believers and us an acceptable offering, just as he said in verse 2, that they will prove what is the good and acceptable will of God, that which is perfect. And he doesn't end there because Paul knows that just writing these words out or just reading these words in and of themselves will not accomplish that work of holiness. So he says at the end of verse 16, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So as we read and examine these five verses, as we read and examine any part of Scripture, we must utterly, truly, humbly depend upon the Spirit of God to bring these truths to enlightenment, illumination in our heart, to make them applicable to our souls. It means that we must understand and agree with God what he wants of us, with a desire, an intentional desire of putting it to practice. We are helpless. We need help. We cry out. That is why we pray to the Holy Spirit to ask for help. So with that, I want to stop and ask for the Lord's gracious help through his Spirit. Merciful and most high God, we do thank you for these mercies that you have lovingly displayed through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, your desire for us to be transformed, to have our thinking, our desires, our even our emotions, Father, renewed, transformed, brought into a line, Father, with your glorious will so that we, Father, may lovingly, joyfully do what is pleasing and honorable to you. So, Father, we ask, we, we call upon your Holy Spirit. We welcome and invite him to, to minister to us as we examine these, these very piercing exhortations that you have given to us of what our love is to be like in the body of Christ, what our love is to be like even within ourselves that you have poured out into us by your Holy Spirit. Father, for we are weak, we are the sinful sons of Adam, and we desperately need your grace and your Spirit's help in this. So, Father, bless this time as we dive into these truths and and make them real to us, Father. In Jesus' holy name, amen. So my intent, my desire in this is just as the Puritans said that the, these truths may become both an experiential and an experimental reality in our life. And this is also the promise that we have given to us by Christ in, in John 16, 13, 16, 13, where to help us understand what is written because he says, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, 
He will guide you into all the truth. And another important emphasis or reminder that Paul gives us in this chapter, he stresses this like two pillars, two bookends, and we see it in verse 3 and again in verse 16, where he says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And then again in verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another and do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Paul is is emphasizing this imperative to have sound judgment or sober judgment as the basis of our discussion of these diverse gifts that he's given to the church. But this is also our call to humility and Christ-like humility. Not to be served, but to serve. And with this humility and unity that comes through the Spirit's work, there is a manifestation of that transformed thinking, of those desires, of those pursuits, of those interests, of even our hobbies, what we do in our spare time. So in humility, again, with the Spirit's great help, we read this word, we pray over this word, and meditate through it, looking to Christ and God's supernatural work of being transformed. So now, let's go from 30,000 feet and dive into the, the grove, the fruit grove, the orange grove, and taste of these fruits. Verse 9 says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Literally, this verse starts out by saying, Sincere love. Or let love be sincere. And that's the positive aspect of this verse, the positive rending. But our NASB says, let love be without hypocrisy. Anopakritos, or unfeigned. And in the context and flow of this chapter, verse 9 may seem to be like a break in the section, a break in Paul's thinking, a break in, in where he is going. And in one sense, it's very similar to what we see in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, where he He goes through a full discourse in chapter 12 of all the gifts of the Spirit. And then in 13, he begins where it says in end of chapter 12, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you still a more excellent way. Because if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. But in another sense, verse 9 of this new section is really a continuation or an unfolding of the deeper realities of having a transformed mind that we see back in verse 2. If we're not thinking more highly of ourselves, but are thinking more highly of Christ and of God with that measure of faith that we've each been given, and that Paul doesn't mean that there that we've been given little droplets of faith and here and there and We've each been given a specific measure of faith, both in believing and trusting in God, but also in the exercise of those gifts that he's been given to us. So I'm not sure there should really be a break here because Paul talks about he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, and now let your love be without hypocrisy. So as his theme continues into verse 9, he's saying but. By the mercies of God in and through Christ, exhorting us to transform our minds. Don't be conformed to this age, but be renewed. 
How does this happen? Not by making much of ourselves, but making much of Christ, which I said will display itself in our lifestyle and our manner of living. And this is what Paul is seeking in these saints and what Paul is seeking for us as well and what the Spirit has in mind as we continue. He begins with the overarching banner of the preeminency of love, genuine love in the believer. Let it be without hypocrisy. And the word used here for love is agape in the Greek. It's not eros, which means it has more of a a sexual, self-satisfying, intoxicating-like pursuit. And it's not phileo, which has more of a, a nobility of love or a brotherly love. And he didn't use storge, which is more of a familiar family type love. Agape is used here because it carries with it a power because it is a love that only God himself can author in the hearts of men and women and children. For it's God who has purposely demonstrated his love to us by sending Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. And it is God alone who has poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, according to Romans 5. And it's a genuine love that can only be experientially known through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's, it's interesting. Paul is not prescribing or commanding, you go love. No, he's telling us that our love is to be sincere. Peter gives a similar parallel to this in 1 Peter 1, um, 22 and 23, where he says in a very kind of an all-encompassing way, I, I love Peter's simplicity. I can definitely relate to this, this apostle and brother. But he says in verse 22, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. So, beloved, seeing that you are redeemed, this should be the result that you have unfeigned. You have sincere love of the brethren. And Peter uses that word fervently. it, It describes a muscle that's being stretched to its absolute limit. It's a striving. It's a dying and a striving. So stretch, let us stretch ourselves to this limit, showing our love to one another since you have been born again. Now let's consider hypocrisy for a moment. This has to be the ugliest sin of all, and we see it fully displayed in Judas Iscariot. And his profound Depths of hatred and deception toward the Son of God to betray him for 30 pieces of silver and then to kiss him and turning him over to the Roman authorities. However, we are all fallen sons of Adam and we too bear within us and war against this hypocrisy. It is, it is so, hypocrisy is so interwoven with pride that it's in essence pride's offspring. There's no vice worse than hypocrisy and no virtue is greater and more powerful than love. Hypocritical love is such an illogical and inconsistent combination 
And John Murray states it very well. He says, if love is the sum of virtue and hypocrisy is the epitome of vice, what a contradiction to bring the two together. What does it look like within us? How do we identify it? There's, there's two main aspects of hypocrisy we see in Scripture. The first is whenever we try through whatever means to make the outside look better than what's on the inside. We try to put forward what may look like a really loving behavior. doesn't really express what we feel on the inside toward another person. We may give this persona of seeking approval of others in really an effort to cover up what's in our hearts. Even if we were to do some very extraordinary acts of sacrifice and not have genuine love inside, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I give all my possessions to the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned and I don't have love, it profits me nothing. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, knew very well the hearts of men and directly confronted this type of hypocrisy in the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, excuse me, in his day. Matthew fifteen seven, he, he quotes to them the prophecy from Isaiah. He said, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. And even more damning were the eight woes by Christ to the Pharisees, exposing their seemingly outward religious fronts, but within they were vile and unclean. In Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and of self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs on which the outside appears beautiful, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The second way hypocrisy shows itself is when we attempt to hide our flaws from others and from ourselves by focusing on the flaws of others so we don't look so bad, so we don't have to confess sins and weaknesses one to another. This is typically one of the central issues in many marriage struggles, but is also in the church. And Christ's example of this in Luke 6 says, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out, the speck out of your eye when you yourself do not even see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you're going to be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Sincere love does not act in this way. It is to rejoice in truth and truth that will humble us before the Father to rightly deal with the the logs within our own eyes and even the specks within our eyes before we begin to look out to help one another. Again, if we have purified our souls, let's not attempt to hide behind any mask or pretense, especially before the Heavenly Father. He sees all things, and, and 
Do not carry this hypocrisy into the church or attempt to be someone that you're not. Christ said in the same parable in Luke 6 that our mouths are going to speak forth from which fills our heart. And if we're to be transparent before the Father, we ought to humbly love one another and receive one another without cloaks or pretenses. Genuine love has been called the mother of justice because it renders to God and to our neighbor what is justly due to them. Genuine love forgets itself and looks to Christ, overflowing in joy to him so that we can meet the needs of one another. Paul continues in verse 9, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. There's a continuation in the theme here with the first imperative. This is Paul's first command. And in that demand for a genuine love, will abhor that which is evil and cling to what is good. In other words, Paul is saying to us, do you love enough to hate? To detest evil? Because it is only genuine love within us that enables us to hate that which is evil and to cling to that which is good. To detest and turn from the one and go to holding fast to the other are essential to both the purity and the depth of our love. These two exhortations together are not just unnecessary repetition, but the latter clinging to good is first ground in the first, meaning that the exertion from evil is measured by the firmness of our grasp on the good. However, our earnestness and zeal must be equal to both participial actions, to both imperatives here. This is not speaking of a a willpower religion or willpower morality. Simply choosing is not enough as this only changes the outside appearances. It is choosing with an internal intensity, a heartfelt spiritual intensity. The word used here for abhor, apostageo, is used only once in the entire New Testament. It has a great significance to us. For us to abhor something that is evil is not just to state our hatred of something, not just to take a stand and affirm that, yeah, that's evil, but it commands and demands with it a turning away from, a recoiling and shrinking away from it because of hating the evil. In fact, it is a deep changing of our emotions because our emotions need to be transformed as well. They cannot be coddled. The genuine love of God within our souls is to be so satisfying, so empowering to our minds and our hearts that we are quick to submit to its sovereignty and recoil at even the appearance of evil and pursue all that is good. Now, we need to be careful in our day and age especially to, be, to, to understand what Paul is and isn't saying here. He's not saying that evil is identified by what he abhors and good is not identified by what he clings to, just as we do not determine in ourselves what is good and what is evil. So what makes good good and evil evil? Is is there an objective good and an objective evil? There is. It's not in this verse. 
but we can quickly look back to verse 2 in the context of this chapter and see that Paul tells us we're not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed because we have defective thinking because of sin by the renewing of our minds through the word of God. We will then know what is good and acceptable and perfect. Yes, there is something as objective good outside of ourselves and outside of our own determination. The reason is because there is a God who is outside of ourselves. And it is God who has made himself known to us historically and objectively through Christ in the scriptures. He alone has determined what is good and what is evil. What God calls evil must be bad for people, and what God calls good must be good for people. How vivid is this in our day and age? We see such bogus charities, unprincipled tolerances, where criminals are pitied and evil is elevated to the point of acceptance that any possible site of punishment is abandoned. For the believer in Christ, it must be insisted upon that we have both a healthy hatred of moral evil in whatever form it takes and the continual accompaniment of all vigorous cleaving to that which is good. In our obedience to the Lord's command to be holy as he is holy, we do not recoil in horror from contact with the bad in our own lives and refuse We refuse to gloss it over with some auspicious words whenever we meet with it. We will likely have a loose grasp and waning appreciation for that which is good if we consider it that way. Please remember, we we are talking about evil things. We are not talking about men that we are to hate. And it is the grace of divine recoil from moral evil that is perfectly consistent with honest love with genuine love. For all believers in this world, love has to feel a hatred for evil. We cannot claim to love people while coddling evil. Paul is not suggesting either some random chaotic emotion of love, of something only felt, but it has to be expressed through word and deed. Genuine love doesn't lead a person to do something evil or avoid what they know is right as defined by the word of God because James tells us very clearly, therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. David transcribes several prayers and vows to us that show both his dependence on this goodness of God, this trust in God, this benevolence and help of God and his for inward transformation, but he also expresses his hatred for evil. Have taken to heart and echoed in prayer these truths as well because they are the word of God, but especially from David in, in expressing his personal dependence and his devotion to God. He was a man after God's own heart. These will impact our discernment. And give us understanding, I think, on on how we perceive and look and consider things of the world and how they impact our, our love for Christ, our love from Christ, and our love for Christ. Psalm 45, 7 says positively, You, O Lord, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Psalm 97.10, hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserve the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Psalm 101.3, I have these above my computer at home. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip upon me. And Psalm 119.18, positively, O Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things of thy law. And finally, Psalm 119.37, turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Paul completes this initial theme of genuine love with his second imperative to us, cling to what is good. This is a beautiful picture, a a compact but a beautiful picture of the intimate union that we see in the marriage relationship between man and wife and even more so in our relationship as the bride of Christ, as the body of Christ to the head of Christ. It was the testimonies of God that David clung to so that he might know his God, that he might love him and worship him. And it's also what the writer of Hebrews conveys when he commands believers in in chapter 12, verse 14, to pursue both peace with men and the sanctification without which no one will see God. Sanctification is a good and glorious work of God in our lives. Now, to cling to kaleo is literally to glue, to weld together to be united with and adhere to. And this is what Paul had in mind when he spoke of our bodies being members of Christ in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So we must reckon ourselves as married to Christ. As his beloved bride, we are to cling to him to his goodness, to the goodness of his truth found only in him, and in humility cling to that cross as the only means of his death that we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins through which we have received the bountiful mercies of God. Daily we need to look for that grace of Christ. So in verse 9, Paul has, has established the foundation. He's completed the, the overriding theme of the remaining verses. But this is a groundwork individually within our hearts as to the genuineness of our love, calling us to consider, to examine this in the light of God, in the light of his word, through the work of the Spirit in searching our hearts. Search me and try me, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me. Keep me, O God, in the everlasting way. And now Paul is going to expand this internal, now outwardly, in verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And he's now taking us into the the one-anothering that we've talked about and heard about in our relationships. How this love is to be expressed outwardly, sacrificially, humbly, 
genuinely to one another. What What is affection or brotherly love, and, and what is honor in the body of Christ? Both of these words bear upon the emotions of the believer. And Paul use, Paul's use here ruins that old notion that we've probably heard in our past. I know I have. Well, we don't have to like people. We just have to love them, you know. It's true, you may be able to love someone by doing good things for them or respect them in some manner and still not like them. This this is not what Paul's talking about. In essence, what he's saying to the believers and to us, show yourself devoted to one another and not just in word, but with tender affection. And the word here for devoted is another one of his single-use words. And it carries with it that affectionate love that a mother has for her child. It's for that close friend that you feel so comfortable with. You'd spend the whole day with fellowshipping in Christ and digging into his word and enjoying a meal. And it's like, this is reality in the body of Christ, you know. We shared that yesterday. So it was, it was, it was just incredible. But this is what we are to have with one another in the church. And even this is sometimes not doable in our own strength. We are weak. We are frail. We still wrestle with remaining sin in us that wants to rise up and say, why are you still here? You know, no, you're going to stay on. All right. Amen. You know, we have to look to Christ in this. We have to look to the spirit because of who he is and what he has done for us. How can we not love like he has loved us? We are, after all, a family. Let that sink in. We are a family. We're not just a social gathering. We are not just a Sunday, spend some great time together, go about Monday and do our own thing. We are connected. We are united by the Holy Spirit of God. He's called us from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. This honor for one another is only to be realized in humility before the Lord and toward one another. Remember, the book ends, verses 3 and 16. Paul adds another dimension here and another single-use word, preference. This is different from affection because... Again, you can honor someone you don't have any affection for. We are in essence to, as it says, anticipate or go before one another in bestowing honor upon one another. Be careful here. This isn't flattery. This isn't just speech to make you feel good or to seek approval from others. This is a sincere recognition and praise of another's accomplishment of of treating them with your deeds worthy, excuse me, and words as worthy of service to them, of help to them, of honor to them. This is shown to us in 1 Timothy 6.1, where Paul even tells Christian slaves who are under persecution, all you who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their masters as worthy of all honor so that, the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. 
And another great example from 1 Corinthians 12 where, where Paul gives us a comparison between the weak members of the body to certain parts of, of our human body. He says, on the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on those we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed Heritage Grace Community Church, this body giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no divisions in the body, so that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members honor with it and rejoice. One final example of honor that we are to guard against, this is one we're to guard against, is James 2. We know the story. We know the verses. A man comes into the assembly, fine clothes, Armani suit, gold ring, new hairstyle. I don't know what kind of fancy shoes men wear these days, but we say, oh, please, please, come in, have a seat. Take the seat of honor next to me, please, thank you. But a poor brother comes in, shabby clothes. And we, uh, why don't you go sit in the back over there? This is displeasing to the Lord. This is not honoring one another. Honoring one another demonstrates our new nature in Christ. Where our behaviors, our outward behaviors, are manifestations of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit within us. Where we treasure Christ above all things in this world. It is because of and can only be known by and through a new birth in Christ. So if there's anyone here that hasn't experienced this, that doesn't know about this, this is your beginning point. Salvation in Christ, a new birth in Christ, to be regenerated from within by the Holy Spirit, to see a holy and righteous God who will bring judgment upon sin. And all of us from birth are guilty of this judgment. But to see his mercies through Christ that have been clearly displayed and manifested through his word and to bear upon your own conscience that knowledge and understanding of right and wrong that bears witness against you. To know genuine love is to only to know Jesus Christ the righteous. And until that happens in your heart and soul, all of this I've talked about is completely foreign and to you. This honor for one another will strengthen and confirm that faith of those that we affectionately love and honor. Honoring another person is going to actually affirm their position in the body. Not that we're giving assurance of their salvation. We are honoring them and affirming their place in the body. That they have a place. We are attached to you. And receiving this in the body of Christ confirms that you are indeed in the family of God. As these things are and must be done 
for the edification of the body. This is where sanctifying work begins in the body, dying to ourselves, honoring one another, expressing that genuine love and service. Finally, this honor for one another and brotherly affection displays the glory of Christ because he is the only one who enables us to live this way and to demonstrate a portrait of his character in the church and to the world. I, I read recently just a brief testimony from, from, I believe it was John MacArthur, where he said, uh, real long story short, there was, there was a Jewish lady who was wanting to be married, and she could not be married in her synagogue because she hadn't paid her dues. She became so furious that she went out looking for any religious organization that would marry her and her husband. And just so happened to go by Grace Community Church. Went in, pursuing, seeking if they would do it. She was so overwhelmed by the love and honor and, and joy of the brothers and sisters in that Christ, in Christ, in that church. She wanted to know what they had. And she's saved. She's a member of the church now. Just because of what she saw demonstrated. My prayer and desire in this message is that we would not only hear, but we would embrace these succinct but clearly revealed precepts indicating what we must be as disciples of Christ. It is always a painful but always a profitable work to measure ourselves against these inspired commandments of Christ. However, Please remember what Paul exhorted us to at the beginning. It is God through Christ who moves us by his mercies and grace. And as we humbly yield ourselves to God, to Christ, to the Spirit's work in enabling these truths to become a part of us, will we be transformed in the renewing of our minds and the experience of indwelling Christ in our hearts by faith in the body of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, who who can fathom, who can measure your great love that you have poured out in our hearts through Christ Jesus by your Holy Spirit? Father, we, we humbly ask and beseech you that you would so increase our hearts, fill our hearts to overflowing with this love for for you for your word and for the brothers and sisters that you have joined together in this body and beyond. And Father, through this agape love, this God-ordained, empowered love within us, Father, may the world be transformed wherever we may go. And as you so see fit, Father, those that would come into this assembly, may they see Christ's love through us. May they desire and hunger that hope that is within us because it is not of ourselves. So, Father, we we thank you. We praise you for this sanctifying work that you alone, Father, have begun. And we trust and rest and look to you that you, Father, will continue it that we would be willing, O oh God, to submit ourselves in every area, every facet of our lives to, to strive, Lord, even in the struggling to surrender. Joyfully surrender, Father, because your riches are eternal 
Oh, Father, may we find such great enjoyment and satisfaction in your beloved Son that he would rule and reign in our hobbies, in our pastimes, whatever they may be, Father. But, oh God, may, may none of these intrude and infringe upon our union with you. Thank you for your word. May, may your spirit write these truths upon our hearts and continue, oh God, that work that only you can do. We give you the honor and the glory for it is in Jesus' holy name we ask these things. Amen.